ever wondered why it's so difficult to create change in your life, to change the habits that you have? Do you ever feel like maybe your brain or your emotions are more in control of you than the other way around? Of course you have. We've all felt like that. We've all felt powerless to change our habits. For instance, maybe you're trying to adopt better sleep hygiene so you can wake up feeling rested and energetic, but it's just so hard to peel yourself away from that next episode of your favorite Netflix series. Or maybe you're trying to adopt an exercise program, but you just feel it's so hard to stay consistent and you wonder why you keep falling off the wagon. We've all been there. Maybe it's in business, maybe it's in health, but we can all relate to that. And the underlying idea behind what we're talking about is getting in control of yourself, which means getting in control of your brain. That's why I'm so passionate about neuroscience and excited to introduce today's guest. Her name is Dr. Tara Swart. She is a neuroscientist who is going to talk about how we can become the CEO of our own brains. She's going to talk about sleep hygiene, and she has a very different approach than some of the other guests that you've heard on this show, like Dr. Kirk Parsley or Sean Stevenson. She is taking the approach of how sleep affects our functioning, our cognitive functioning. You'll also hear about nutrition and how that affects your ability to think clearly, to be creative, and to get things done. So get ready to learn how to master your thoughts, focus your attention, and ultimately change your behavior with this episode featuring Dr. Tara Swart. Dr. Tara Swart, thank you for being on the Legendary Life Podcast today. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here. I am a big fan. I found you when I was researching sleep, and it's such a hot topic, and you seem like one of the go-to experts. And for those of you listening who don't know who Tara Swart is, she is a neuroscientist. She is the CEO of The Unlimited Mind, a company that harnesses the power of neuroscience to help people and companies perform their best. She's the author of Neuroscience for Leadership, Harnessing the Brain Gain Advantage. And Tara, you've just come out with a new course at MIT, Unleashing Brain Power for You and Your People, a course that explores neuroscience concepts and techniques to help leaders motivate and inspire their peers to create more innovation and success in their business. So how did you get started in neuroscience? Well, you know, Ted, people say that it's a very new topic, but actually, when I went to university, which is going to be 25 years ago this year, I started off at medical school in preclinical medicine. And in the third year, we were allowed to choose some special topics. And I chose the neuro version of every topic, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, neuropharmacology. It was just the area that I found the most fascinating. It seemed like the brain is the CEO of the body. So I wanted to start at the top. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And the brain is the CEO of the body. It's so true. And it's a very profound statement. I can't wait to dive into that more. But I'm very curious, what was your journey into medicine in general? And you said that neuroscience caught your attention. Can you expound on that a little bit more? Yeah, so... I started medical school at 18. It's split into two sections, pre-clinical, where you, you cover most of the theory, and then clinical, where you actually start to get to work with patients. And so the first two years are basic human anatomy. You actually get a, a dead human body between six of you that you dissect over a year. Then you understand the physiology and what happens when medications go in for certain diseases. And you also have to do some basic statistics and sociology. But like I said, you get there's a chance to do a special third year. And that's where I chose all the neuroscience topics. And then you do a research project as well. And I did a project in a neuroscience lab. And that's when I got the opportunity to do my PhD. So I actually skipped out of medical school halfway through, did the PhD, thinking that I would become a neurologist, and then came back to the clinical part of medical school and found that I was far more fascinated by psychiatry because it was 
more to do with how people think and feel and how their behavior changes when one tiny chemical imbalance creates, you know, sort of a difference in the way that they experience the world. Yeah, it's so profound because I think a lot of people go through life and we have this programming from our CEO, our brain, as, as you called it, and we have emotions that come up, feelings that come up, and behaviors that happen. And sometimes we don't understand why, and it really comes down to what's going on there, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's been this whole argument about duality, like the, between the mind and the brain and the brain and the body. Um, the neuroscientists would say that all thoughts are emergent from chemical and electrical signals that pass between neurons in the brain. I guess we'd all like to think there's, there's a little bit more to us than that. But basically, understanding the neuroendocrine system, which is the interaction of nerves and hormones throughout your brain and your body, can give you an insight into the way that you think and therefore the way that you choose to behave in the outside world and the habits that you create, which can be so, so powerful. And, you know, I got to thinking, why should only a few people know about this? At first, it was just academics and scientists and then practitioners. Now it's leaking into the business world and a little bit into education sort of, you know, for our children and at MBA level. But, you know, the reason that I'm running the programs at MIT, the reason I wrote the book and that I was so thrilled to speak to you is that I just think that everybody should understand that there are two or three little things that you could do if you understand how your brain works that could actually change your life. And it's all about marginal gains. I always say, don't try to change one thing by 10%. Try to change 10 things by 1% and you'll actually get a bigger gain overall than if you try to make a big change. A lot of people say to really focus on one thing and to develop it, but your approach to what you teach in your courses, in your book, are more about raising a bunch of different areas just a little bit to create this synergistic, more than the sum of its parts effect. Let's talk about those things that you you said, but actually, could you explain for someone who doesn't have the knowledge that you have, why you're so passionate about sharing neuroscience and why everyone listening should be interested in this? Well, like I said, the brain is the CEO of your body. So if you were working for a leader, whether it's a team leader or on a project or, you know, of a big organization, and you understood how that person likes to see results, what their values and attitudes are, how they like things to be done, then you can tailor your work to get the best results that, that they, they would want. And it's exactly the same with your brain. If you knew what you had to put in to get out what you want from your brain, then you wouldn't be guessing, you wouldn't be putting energy in the wrong direction. You'd be doing exactly what you need to do to get the best performance out of your brain and your body. Yeah. And what myths or misconceptions do you think most people have about neuroscience and how our behavior and our brain? I think that the biggest thing I was, you know, there are some obvious things like we only use 10% of our brain or like certain functions are in the left and certain functions are in the right. And I think people are really moving away from, from believing those in the way that we did before. But the main one for me is about the brain-body connection we still act as if our thoughts and our feelings are in our mind, and that's totally separate to what goes on in our bodies. But actually, if you're scared or if you're overconfident, that changes the activity of nerves and hormones in your body. Equally, if you're tired, hungry, jet-lagged, cold, that affects the way that you think and eventually you know, the way that you lead, if, that's, if, that, if we're talking about leadership particularly. And a simple thing like, most people know that your choices about healthy eating affect your physical health and your body. But even at rest, your brain, which only weighs 2 to 3% of your body weight, uses up 20% of the breakdown products of what you eat. When you're thinking really hard, it's using up 30% of the breakdown products of what you eat. So almost a third of what you eat is directly contributing to your quality of thinking. It's not even getting to your body. It's being sucked up preferentially by your brain. And I think that's one thing 
that if you changed your diet based on that could make a massive difference to how much you can get out of your brain. Wow, let's explore that area. Because diet is such a controversial subject in my business, the fitness business, in my industry, there's a, a big focus on building muscle or burning fat and this idea of your brain only being 2% of your body weight, but using up to 20 to 30% of all the energy, all the food that you eat, just to power through your day mentally. People don't get that. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on. What can you tell us about what dietary choices or what micronutrients or what can you tell us about nutrition, how we can eat better to affect our brain health and performance? Ted, we could have a whole podcast, a series <laughs> of podcasts on this. But basically, I want to, you know, to go back to what you said, that if you're an athlete, you would you know, eat more protein, try to burn more fat. This is how I want people to think about their brain. So, you know, and, and we still don't in society, like you said, we're, we're much more focused on the body than the brain. So the brain is largely made out of fat. So there are some good fat that the brain, you know, soaks up and, and is very good for it. So things like coconut oil, olive oil, the fats that you find in nuts and seeds and avocado and salmon, those are sort of probably my top, my favorite brain foods. There's actually scientific evidence that if you eat one teaspoonful of coconut oil, which is like rocket fuel for your brain, your cognitive performance improves for about 20 minutes afterwards. I mean, that's, that's the icing on the cake kind of stuff. But basically, you need to eat regularly. Your brain sucks up the glucose that it needs. It can't store it for later. When your blood sugar supply becomes low, your brain is basically under-resourced. We know that people who were interviewing candidates for parole from prison, you know in the afternoon, about one and a half, two hours after lunchtime, you're, you've digested your food and your blood sugar can feel a bit low. Sure, well, they sure. divided the groups of parole board reviewers into groups that drank diet cola, which has no nutritional value or sugar in it whatsoever, and full sugar cola, which has the equivalent of eight teaspoons full of sugar. I just want to say at this point that when I say glucose, I don't actually mean refined sugar. I mean the breakdown products of a healthy, balanced diet. But for argument's sake, in this afternoon break, when the people had digested their, all of their lunch and run out of these glucose resources for the brain, the group that were given diet drinks with no sugar in it actually made more racist decisions than groups that had drinks with sugar in because... When our brain's under-resourced, we can't regulate our emotions. We fall back onto our, un our unconscious biases. I mean, even if you think you don't have a racist, ageist, or sexist bone in your body, if that stereotype exists in the world, then to some extent it's wired into your brain. And that's why you need to be resting your brain, fueling your brain, hydrating your brain, and creating some simplicity for your brain, but also longer term, you need to create some cognitive challenge to keep your brain growing and learning. Wow. I've never heard that before. And I've had a couple of neuroscientists on, on this show. That's pretty fascinating. And it's a bit controversial to say that with the sugar, because so many people talk about the sugar affecting your brain in a negative way. And so many things are bad about sugar. And I know you made that distinction between you're not necessarily you're pointing out one study and you're not saying, hey, that, that means you should go drink Coke full of sugar. You can break down glucose from any type of carbohydrate, but when we're undernourished, we start to make bad decisions because we're unable to regulate our emotions. Do you have any thoughts on the ketogenic diets that so many people say improve brain performance. Is there anything that you could tell us about that research or your perspective? Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that you put that absolutely beautifully. So we're not talking about refined sugar and blood sugar spikes as being good for our body or our brain. In that particular experiment, the easiest way to you know supply a boost of sugar to the brain was through a, 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 a fizzy drink or a soda, as you would call it. So yeah, eating regularly is, is what you need to do in normal life to make sure that your brain is is nourished so with these 
ketogenic diets, which I am actually a fan of, and I'm also a fan of the fasting diets, um, longer term, you get brain benefits, but shorter term, during the actual period of starvation, it is a little bit harder work for your brain. We can't deny that. But overall, we think it is worth it. I mean, when we lived in caves, we hunted and gathered, we didn't eat regularly, we didn't have unlimited access to food. So we're not actually built to necessarily survive like that. And of course, now we eat way more than we need to, larger quantities more regularly. We know that fasting, even just for 24 hours once a month, increases longevity overall. So let's say the the 5-2 diet, where you fast for two non-consecutive days during the week, then on those days, you know, just as you wouldn't do like a really vigorous workout, you also probably shouldn't have a high stakes meeting. But that constant, what we call stress inoculation, so starvation followed by recovery that you control, actually increases your mental toughness. So, and equally, just other ketogenic diets where you burn more fat and you build up more muscle, well, that's a good state for your body to be in. So it's all about peak performance. If you keep your body and brain in peak physical performance, you will get more out of it mentally. That's the bottom line. Yeah. One other follow-up question I had about that was in your example of the research study, you were using carbohydrates, glucose from the the soda drinks Mm. and ketogenic diets are about producing ketones. So running the brain on ketones is, uh, and you just said you're a fan of it. So that's a better thing to run our brains on ketones than than glucose for cognitive health and performance? Well, no, I wouldn't go that far. Glucose and oxygen are the resources for our brain. There are some things called medium-chain triglycerides, which are actually great fuel for our brain. So our brain can use a few different types of fuel, but we shouldn't be starving ourselves long-term in terms of mental performance. And specifically with the carbohydrate macronutrient. So we should be eating carbs. We shouldn't. We do have to eat some carbs. Yeah. If we don't, then we can't create some of the essential building blocks that we need for hormones such as serotonin, actually. So serotonin is the mood chemical that needs some carbohydrate to build it. So there would be a risk of affecting your mood if you don't eat any carbohydrate for a long time. Right. And you don't want to supplement with L-tryptophan all the time. No, no. Yeah. Interesting. Supplements should only be an addition to a healthy, balanced diet. They are not instead of a healthy, balanced diet ever. Yeah. Well, I wasn't even planning on going down this route, but since you brought it up, it was so fascinating. I couldn't help myself. So thank you so much. Let's talk about something else. And I feel like I got to get you back on the show and then we'll really open up the diet, the supplements and, and talk about some of the things that you mentioned in more detail. What I really wanted to get into was sleep because you're one of the people out there spreading this message about sleep, about what the research says, about how we can take better care of ourselves. And before we get into that, I, I want to ask you, sleep was not popular at all. When I first got into the fitness business 17 years ago, we talked about healthy diets, exercise. Some of the classes that I took talked about hormones and all this other stuff. And people just kind of said, oh yeah, well, you got to sleep. But it, there really wasn't specific information in your view, why is there this, this gaining momentum for this gaining interest in sleep and how it affects us? Yeah, well, considering we spend up to a third of our lives sleeping, we really haven't known that much about why we need to do it. And in the last few years, a lot more information has come to light. And I think that's changed things quite dramatically. So there's two major things. One is the, re- the long-term reasons that we need to sleep seven to nine hours overnight. And the other one is what happens if we have, you know, temporary periods of sleep disruption. So the first one, there's an active cleansing process that takes seven or eight hours overnight. So until just a couple of years ago, we didn't really know much about this at all. 
And then for a while, we thought that it was quite a passive trickling of the fluid that sits around the brain through the brain overnight. And now we know that it's a forcible flushing out of toxins from the crevices in the brain. And people who have long-term sleep disruption, so not getting more than seven hours of sleep per night for long periods, have a higher level of neurotoxins like beta amyloid plaques and protein tangles in their brain. And these are exactly the same pathology that we see in dementing diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Now, when this research first came out, they were, and this was about the time that I was finishing my book, they weren't able to say that lack of sleep actually causes dementing diseases, but the research has now moved positively in that direction. Wow. So, yeah, I know. I mean, I was a junior doctor working hundreds of hours, including night shifts, and I travel a lot now for my work. But since I've heard that research, I've been just as careful as I can be about trying to get eight hours sleep most of the time. Yeah. So you're saying that this long-term sleep problems with sleep long-term causes buildup of plaques like beta amyloid. We say beta, or at least I do here. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I speak American. You speak the right <laughs> English, but for another time, another conversation. So, yeah. so it starts to build up and you're saying, because I read about the correlation and the guy, I believe it was in a TED talk that I watched was part of the team that discovered the glymphatic system. Yeah, He said, oh, it may be one of the key steps, but he didn't say anything definite. And you're saying now we know for sure that it's, there's a direct causation. Well, no, I, I, what I'm saying is the research is moving in the, that direction that it's oh. more causation than correlation. But I think it's, gonna, I think it's, not, it's a matter of time now until they say that it's a direct causation. Oh, thanks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I love scientists because you're so careful about what you say in this fitness industry where people make outrageous claims. I really appreciate the nuances and subtleties and, and attention to detail when it comes to what we truly know. So definitely appreciate that. I think that, you know, the major thing that a lot of scientists have had to learn in the last 20 years, particularly since the advent of scanning, is that everything that we thought previously, we, we have to be able to say that some of it wasn't right. And even, you know, and, and the learning from that is that as research comes about now, you have to be prepared to, to in the future, see that actually it's something different to what you thought and be okay with that. Because if you're not, then you're not really a scientist. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, well stated. Is there anything like that with sleep that we used to believe before and has changed other than the glymphatic system that you mentioned? Well, the thing is, we really didn't know that much before. So we know a few things now. I don't think they're that contrary to what we would have, you know, probably thought was the case. So the shorter term things that are worth knowing about are that if you have any sleep disturbance overnight, significant, then the next day you're operating on an apparent IQ loss of five to eight points. Now, most people could carry out the day job just as well as usual, even if they were kind of five to eight IQ points less than they normally are. But if you lose a whole night's sleep, and that could be a red-eye flight, that could be because you've got very young children or whatever reason, then the population norm studies show a standard deviation drop in IQ, and that would put all of us below normal IQ. So for me, it's, it's travel and jet lag that can make me feel like that. So I design my working times depending on you know, how many time zones I've crossed, I will give myself a certain amount of rest before I work. There are certain populations of people that stay up all night you know, doing deals for, for days on end and still feel that that's a very macho thing to do. At some point, that becomes the equivalent of walking into work very drunk. So I always say, you, know, you wouldn't slap somebody on the back for coming in and saying, oh, I've turned up today sort of after having drunk X amount of alcohol to do my job. So why do we still say that it's cool to not sleep and go to work? Couldn't agree more. I can't stand the macho BS talk when there's clear evidence that shows that this is not only hindering our performance, but destroying other parts of our lives and maybe setting us up for Alzheimer's down the road. But there is like, there are CEOs like 
Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and Yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer, who claim they only need four to five hours of sleep to function. Are there people who can go without sleep or people who need less sleep than the average and they're not negatively affected? There is a genetic anomaly that means that one to two percent of the population don't need seven to nine hours sleep per night. And, you know, perhaps they can manage on four to five hours of sleep per night. But you've mentioned two people. Okay, that's not science. That's anecdotes. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I can mention two people who famously said that they didn't sleep very much, who both got Alzheimer's, and that's Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. So, you know, I could respond to your, I could bat that ball back to you with my little anecdote, but the science clearly shows that 98 to 99% of people need to rest their brain seven to nine hours a night. Yeah, I am all about that. That is something that I took for granted for many years, and it's been the thing that exercise couldn't do for me all this different types of nutrition i was trying the different diets and eating superfoods couldn't do for me and i now say which i think you'll appreciate there's no exercise you can do no diet you can follow no supplement that you can take that can make up for poor quality sleep or poor or not enough sleep so yeah i totally agree i always think like work it backwards how long could you live without doing one of these things. How long could you live without eating? Probably quite a long time. How long could you live if you didn't sleep at all? What's the answer to that? Actually, I don't know. I don't know what the exact (laughs) answer is, but I suspect it's a lot less than if you didn't eat. It's a little bit on the ethical, you know, a little, some ethical issues with uh, seeing how much sleep deprivation kills a human being, huh? (laughs) Hard to do research on that. There are some experiments where they, obviously it's healthy volunteers, but people are repeatedly woken up at different parts of the sleep cycle. And what you see is that the ability to lay down certain types of memory changes at different points of sleep disruption during the sleep cycle. But I don't think, yeah, ethically you could just keep people awake the whole night on and on. That wouldn't really be okay. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's funny to joke about, but yeah, absolutely. If I go one night without sleep, I'm just, all I want to do is just take a nap of some sort or go to bed really early the next night. I've found that there's just nothing else that can do what sleep can do for me. Something that I've heard about, I read a study from Dr. Eve Van Cotter, I believe her name was, and she was talking about how they had a group of young men in their 20s and they sleep deprived them to where they were getting, I think, around five hours of sleep. And it was a week long, so it wasn't a really long study. And I'm, I may be off on a few of the details. I'll make sure I find it and put it in the resource section. But she found that the testosterone production was severely depressed in these young, otherwise very healthy guys. Do you know about any research regarding these sleep deprivation and anabolic hormones like testosterone or estrogen or, you know, any of those types of hormones that make us feel and perform our best? Yeah. So we know that melatonin and cortisol are the hormones that are involved in the sleep-wake cycle. So melatonin helps us to fall asleep and cortisol helps us to wake up. And when we actually, you know, offline, we talked about sleeping in a, in a dark properly darkened room. So the reason for that is that if there's any light, you know, even a standby light or street lights outside that your body can sense through your eyelids, then it disrupts your melatonin cycle. And we know that women who work night shifts, so this experiment was done on female nurses, actually have a higher likelihood of getting breast cancer. So that will be connected to melatonin and estrogen. Because the steroid hormones are all connected through a very complex cascade, so I can't really go into that now, but it's like a seesaw. So if you have more of one, you're going to have less of another, or there's going to be some compensation within the hormone cascade. So absolutely, all of those sorts of hormones would get affected by the disruption of melatonin and cortisol through disruption of sleep. Mm. Yeah, story for another time, but just if you're listening right now, know that 
those testosterone boosters or whatever, if there's women listening to the show, whatever sort of hormone things they're trying to sell you as a fitness supplement, there's just no making up for it if you're not addressing this first. Let me ask you, Tara, you mentioned melatonin. I can go and buy melatonin in the store, in the supplement store or at Whole Foods. Mm. What are your thoughts on melatonin supplementation? Well, that's an interesting one, especially considering that it's you and I that are having this conversation. Because in the UK, I cannot go and buy melatonin in the store. Um, because it's a hormone. Well, it's, it's prescription only. Mm. So that means that, you know, the drug administration agency in my country sees that as something that people should not freely be getting access to. Whereas I know because I've got global clients, you know, that in, in certain countries around the world, you can go and get it. So our melatonin, our natural melatonin production decreases with age. I think where it's indicated for a sleep disturbance, maybe for jet lag, it's pretty much the only one that you can use in children because you can't really give them Valium-based sleeping tablets if they're on, you know, medication for ADD or something. So I always say with, you have to remember that for me, that I consider it a prescription medication, that if there's a medical indication for it, then that's the right treatment. If you don't have a medical need for a certain drug, then I, you know, my view is that you shouldn't take it. That things like sleep hygiene and more, you know, perhaps more natural remedies are the best or first way to go. Yeah. So if you're a person listening to this right now and you're staying up, you're pushing yourself either to work or perhaps catch up on your favorite Netflix series, taking melatonin is not really something you should do. You need to focus on good sleep hygiene and Tara only recommends melatonin in a medical situation, like I guess in insomnia or something like that. Right, Tara? Yeah. I mean, I think I know because it's available here, I think it's probably indicated for jet lag and that's probably okay. But that should just be like two, three nights here and there. I would want to, you know, if somebody said I need to take melatonin, I would want to know why. And, and this is why I think being educated about your brain is so important because then you're making informed decisions and, you know, not decisions that are made out of partial information or under pressure. So, yeah, I'd want to know why the person wasn't sleeping. And you've already given me a clue as to why somebody might not be sleeping. So if you are watching any movies late at night, then the blue light from the screen will actually be preventing your pineal gland from releasing melatonin. So, you know, there's all sorts of things like, you know, we know we shouldn't eat too late or train too late because it activates our body. Drinking alcohol or caffeine too late in the day can also disrupt our sleep. But actually looking at devices with blue light, we recommend that you don't do that for an hour before bedtime because the pineal gland releases melatonin about an hour before you fall asleep. That's part of the falling asleep process. So you want that period of time to be, you know, under sort of reduced lighting and just sort of calm and getting you ready for a good night's sleep. Great. So you, you mentioned several different sleep hygiene techniques, if you will. Can you walk us through maybe an ideal sleep ritual to ensure that we get not only the proper quantity of sleep, but also the quality of sleep? Yeah, so the first thing is to go to sleep and wake up at the same time every day. If you do that during the week and you don't need to lie in at the weekends, then you know that you're getting enough good quality sleep. I recommend not drinking any caffeine after 2 p.m., and no alcohol within one to two hours of bedtime, and no blue lights within one hour of bedtime. Also, the things I mentioned earlier, not eating too late. If you're doing vigorous exercise, you should do that more than four to five hours before bedtime as well. Obviously, well, I prefer morning, but if you do evenings, then as long as it's not too close to bedtime, and if it is in the evening, that you refuel and rehydrate really well afterwards. Otherwise, your body is working too hard overnight and you can't actually get the rest that you need from sleep. Yeah, I think those are the main things. It's the regularity, the careful use of caffeine, alcohol, blue lights. 
I feel like I'm missing something, but I can't think what it is now. Oh, oh yeah. So having a bedroom that's very, very dark and preferably with no electrical gadgets in the room at all. Some people say a cold room, and I notice that I sleep better in a cold environment. And I read some things that if it's around the 64 degree Fahrenheit range, I'm, I can't do the calculation in my head what that is Celsius, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. sorry, <laughs> we're still using the freedom. We st- we use freedom units as another guest on my podcast said. So yes. any, anyway, but there was something about how it can activate brown fat and help you burn more calories. But is there anything that shows that cold weather, cold temperatures improve sleep quality? Do you know, I completely agree with you that I sleep better. And I've heard other people saying it as well, if it's colder. I don't actually know the science on that one. That's really interesting because I often t- turn the temperature down a bit when I'm teaching at MIT to keep people concentrating. <laughs> but I've never thought about how, I, I, don't, I haven't read you know, any research on how it affects your sleep quality, but I agree with you. But that's more from just experience. Interesting. I had... Another a medical doctor, Dr. Kirk Parsley, on the show, who is kind of an interesting guy. He's a former Navy SEAL turned into a medical doctor who preaches the power of sleep. You know, he mentioned that, but I forgot to ask him about the science. I don't know if there is any. Hopefully, uh, we can figure that out. But it definitely seems to be better. Let me ask you this. I, when he was on, actually, I got into a little bit of trouble with one of the listeners. Isabel called me out and said, hey, you talked about sleep with this guy for an entire hour, but you didn't ask him when the best time to go to bed is. Do you have any views on that? Or is there any research you can tell us about, about the best time to go to bed? Yeah, so we, all, you know, we have to remember that pe- people and people's brains are very individual, so there isn't going to, going to be one answer that suits everybody. But generally speaking, our sleep-wake cycle is supposed to be connected to the light-dark cycle outside. Obviously, for a long time now, we've had artificial lighting, so we've moved very much away from living in that way. In you know, the northern uh, the hemispheres, we get a lot of variation in daytime daylight length. So... I can't really say you should go to sleep at 4 p.m. in the winter and midnight in the summer. So you have to find some kind of balance that works for you. I mean, generally speaking, it's 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. But each individual, you know, like with napping, like with the exact times for sleep, you have to find out what's right for you. When I was doing my research on napping, I broke my sleep at, at several different times to see what suited me on the sleep cycle. And I, I always say to people, I can tell you what I do, but you need to work out what's right for you. Can you give us some tips for figuring out our own sleep cycles? Well, a, a human sleep cycle is 90 minutes. If you nap for 90 minutes or sleep for multiples of 90 minutes, you should be okay. And of course, there's so much wearable technology now, so you can really get a better insight into your personal sleep cycle. If you break the sleep cycle at the wrong time, you will feel worse than you did before. You'll actually feel groggy and more tired. So when I thought, you know, one doesn't have the luxury of a 90-minute nap every day, I needed to work out what would be a, a good shorter nap for me. I went for 45 minutes. It's halfway through. Felt terrible. Tried 40, tried 50. It makes a massive difference. So, you know, it's just you could sit down and work out the science by breaking down the the um, actual sleep cycle and the brain waves. But if you know enough, you can work it out for your individual self. I think, you know, knowing your own body, listening to messages from your body, that is probably the biggest thing I would like people to take away from this. I've worked with a lot of people in financial services in the last seven years who had colleagues that dropped dead on the trading floor in front of them who themselves have had mild heart attacks who said to me, I was getting chest pain for months, but I never thought I would have a heart attack. That, to me, is the extreme moving away from understanding that you are a person, an animal with a body that gives you information, and you can choose to ignore that at your peril, but we need to be in tune with our bodies. 
And that's where understanding your brain becomes so important. Yeah, that's scary. I couldn't imagine that. And during our talk, what keeps coming up is this idea that, okay, you have a circadian rhythm that responds to the amount of light, the natural light. Of course, we respond to the blue light that's in our electric lights. But if we didn't have that before the advent of electricity in our homes, we would have relied on the sunlight. We would, And of course, some firelight as well, which doesn't have blue light in it. And we would have a more natural shifting as the seasons changed and there became less light in, in the winter. Perhaps we would go to bed earlier. But we've moved away from that into this modern society. And we also have kind of disconnected from the fact, like you said, that we're people, we have rules that we need to follow. And if we violate those rules, like we have to breathe air, we have to eat food, we have to go to sleep. And we, we just have, it's kind of an interesting time where we're trying to f- strike the balance between success, however we define it in our modern world, with also respecting the fact that we're a biological machine that needs certain upkeep or else it falls apart. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if we don't appreciate ourselves for the biological, emotional part, then pretty much, you know, soon we're going to get replaced by artificial intelligence. So actually nurture the part of us that makes us special and different and irreplaceable. People like you and me and your listeners are probably more familiar with biofeedback, which is messages from our body, because I do a lot of yoga, you know, you will do a lot of other forms of exercise. But there are a lot of people out there who are completely out of touch with their bodies. And, you know, like you were saying, when we sat around the fire at night and we looked at the stars in the sky, we were connected to nature as well. But if I ask most people now, when was the last time you walked outdoors, better remember. You know, when was the last time you had no access to unnatural lighting? Most people would say never. So I think it's about understanding where we've evolved from, and what parts of that we still have to obey, whilst, of course, taking, you know, full opportunity from all the things we've learned, the things we've invented, the way the world is, you know, moving with technology, etc. So things like using wearable technology to understand your body better is great. Being online all the time and never seeing any friends or family, not so good. You know, it's, it's all about balance. And, and even with the neuroscience, we need to create some time for simplicity. So you were saying earlier, there's nothing that replaces sleep. And I completely agree with you. But if there's one thing that can make up for it, if you've really, really been struggling, it's, it's mindfulness. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And so simplicity from mindfulness, simplicity from time and nature, simplicity from switching off technology. But on the other hand, neuroplasticity, growing your brain through cognitive challenge, learn a new language, travel, learn a musical instrument, give yourself a, you know, a mental task that's difficult that you have to pay attention to so that that intense effort actually grows your brain. It's both of those things. That's all amazing things. Before we get into your course, because I want to talk about the new course that you're putting on at MIT, can you talk a little bit about what you recommend as far as wearables and what you mean by mindfulness? Should I be meditating or is there some gratitude journal I should be doing? What do you re- recommend there? I actually run a well-being program called Leading Sustainable Performance, where I use, a, I think it's the most scientifically rigorous heart rate variability monitoring technology that's out there, and it's worn on, through gel electrodes on the chest. But, you know, once you've had a big insight from something like that, um, just wearing a wristband that can monitor your sleep, that can monitor your steps, your heart rate, you know, that's all great. Anything like that is good. And in terms of mindfulness, my personal favorite is yoga because it connects the mind and the body. But meditation is great. Journaling is great. Gratitude lists, mindful eating, mindful walking. You know, I I believe mindfulness is a way of life. It's not sitting down for 10 minutes and emptying your mind of thoughts. But there are, again, lots of great apps and audiobooks out there which can help people who've never tried it before to start by just putting the earphones in and listening to the voice and doing what it says and not feeling that fear of, well, I don't know what this is and I don't know if I can do it. I, I think it, you know, it'd be great if everybody just tried. 
And actually, that's a lovely segue into my programs at MIT, because on the the two programs, the existing one, Neuroscience for Leadership, and the new one, Applied Neuroscience, we have optional yoga classes at the beginning of the day. I run a guided mindfulness exercise at the end of the day. On the new program, we're going to be discussing embodied leadership, and we will actually be engaging in somatic practice. So I've warned the delegates to come in very comfortable clothing and flat shoes. And I'm actually also doing something called spaced learning. So I try to run the programs based on our understanding of neuroscience so that we're not just standing up there talking about neuroscience, we're actually living it. So the catering is totally amazing. We've been so lucky. My rather weird requests have been catered for beautifully. We've got plenty of access to water in the room. We don't have any caffeine after lunchtime. We have lots of breaks. We have the, ex- the optional exercise. We haven't managed to include the napping, but I always encourage people to go home and lie down afterwards. And this time we're including spaced learning. So we'll be stopping in the middle of each segment and getting people on jump ropes and with juggling balls. So it's not just the benefits of, of oxygen and endorphins to the brain, but there's also a benefit to learning and memory by stopping and doing something else for a while and then coming back to the learning. So I'm super excited about this. Wow, that sounds so cool. And I love how you say it's experiential because I really, well, here, I'll I'll put this out to you and you can tell me with your much better and more qualified background what your thoughts are. But a lot of people, like people listening to this podcast, they'll get something out of it. They'll learn something they'll get some new ideas. Perhaps they feel motivated afterward. But we try to listen to things or read books or perhaps watch a lecture when the true things that cause a shift in our brain that lasts, that makes us a person who has more skills or shifts our identity or whatever we're looking to achieve needs to be experience-based. Is that true? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's much more compelling and sustainable to the brain if it's already been experienced. Anything new that we haven't experienced before is actually viewed by the brain as a threat. Even just visualizing something, not even doing it, makes it much less of a threat and much much more likely that you'll, you'll do it and do it well when you try it. So I'm sure you know, that could work with weight training or any sort of exercise. The other thing that I think, you know, I was just thinking about the legendary life, you know, what's a legendary life from the point of view of neuroscience? Everything that we've talked about, you were right to almost end on saying that it should be experienced. But I think there's a real point that we should end on, which is that we have a very, very strong need to belong. And being held accountable to behavior change or habit formation by someone else. Um, So, you know, sharing the data from your wearable, having a buddy, having a mentor, being part of a group that's trying to achieve something together, that has such a beneficial effect on the brain. I think it trumps everything else. You know, and that's really, that's, now we're talking about the hormones and chemicals that are to do with trust and love and bonding. And we still like to think that, those are, you know, the ones that are more important and outweigh the ones that are to do with fear and stress and loss. So, and, you know, exercise improves the release of those sorts of hormones and endorphins, but really being together in a group, having deep social connections and networks is, I think, what really makes us, you know, what affects our behavior the most. Interesting. Well, Tara, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was just a pleasure to have you on. And I think we should stop here because I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) (laughs) I am so inspired right now. And if, if you're listening, I highly suggest you check out Tara's class. I'll have the link to that in the show notes, Applied Neuroscience, Unleashing Brain Power for You and Your People. I will also have the link to her book, Neuroscience for Leadership. And what you heard here, there's just so much that we could talk about, but we have a limited amount of time to cover things. So it's just a taste. It's up to you to to listen to this, to, to have your appetite whetted for more, then go after it. 
look at her class, check out Neuroscience for Leadership. And Tara, do you have any final words or could you talk about what really excites you about the direction that neuroscience technology is going? Look, I'm thrilled that the interest in neuroscience, you know, has grown so much and and seems to be growing further. I think the biggest challenge that's going to face us as humanity going forward is, you know, both a challenge and a blessing is the development of artificial intelligence. And the question that I would pose to the listeners is, what is it about you that makes you unique enough going forward that you shouldn't be replaced by a robot? And my TEDx talk on technology and the future of the human brain is pinned on my Twitter feed. And I love all these artificial intelligence sort of bits of information and conversations. So please, you know, as well as Ted, you've been very kind and said people should look at my program and my book. But follow me on Twitter, engage with me on Twitter, read all of our free material on my website, look at the videos and spread the word, I think. Neuroscience for you know, to tell everybody about it. Or you're making the world a better place one brain at a time. Oh, thank you, Ted. So are you. I'm doing my best here. I will have all those links to your Twitter, to the website, the-unlimited-mind.com. All of that, the links to the book, the class, and more at the show notes. Dr. Tara Swart, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, and most importantly, your time. Thank you so much, Ted. It's been wonderful.